This year's legislative session left a lot of unfinished business and unanswered questions. And State Senator Gina Walsh has a lot to say about the road ahead. The Bellefontaine Neighbors Democrat joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair to say. As I say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is still having a great time on the East Coast vacationing, so mm-hmm. my special co-host today is... Tim Lloyd, uh, reporter, St. Louis Public Radio. The, one of the producers of the very, very, very good We Live Here podcast. Thank you. And joining us again for the second time, our special guest today... Gina Wall, senator from the 13th Senatorial District. Would it be fair to say you're the pride of Bellefontaine neighbors? No, I would say that I'm one of the worker bees of Bellefontaine neighbors. The worker bees of, <laughs> of Bellefontaine neighbors. Welcome back. Uh, one of the great things about uh, having a returning guest is we don't have to spend 10, 15 minutes recounting your life story. We could just jump into issues. And I think we have a lot to talk about today because a lot has happened, I think, in the two years since we last had you on the show. Just a little bit. Has it been two years? It's been about two years. Wow. Yeah. You know, we time passes pretty quickly here. Yeah. But the the big thing that happened over veto session was an issue I know is near and dear to your heart, us, quote unquote, right to work legislation. I know you probably call it right to work for less or the I worst do. the worst bill ever or something like that. It, it did not get overridden. But the fact that it even got to the point where it was at a veto override, did it surprise you that it made it to Nixon's desk to get vetoed? You know, we always we had relied heavily on the governor's veto pin on that issue, and uh, we always knew there was a very good chance that that would happen. I mean, if you do the math, you have to look at the makeup of the legislature, and uh, the math is not on our side. So it didn't surprise me, but I was very disappointed. What, did it surprise you, though, that it, it, when, it, when there were the vote happened, there was not enough votes for an override in either the House or the Senate, yet they still used the previous question to kind of get it to Nixon's desk. And the thing that surprised me about it is a lot of people who are in the Senate now were in the House in 2007, including yourself. They knew what happened when they used the PQ during that time. It caused the Senate basically to shut down. Did you get a sense like anyone knew what the consequences would be for doing that? You know, uh we were in the House when that happened, most of the members that are in the Senate now. So, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know if they thought that we would just roll over, but you can't. The Senate's vastly different from the House. I mean, the PQ in the House is uh, daily business. I, I know we probably shouldn't, but we have a pool every year to see how high the PQ count would get in the House. And... Uh, Every year, it just increases and increases. So I was pretty surprised that it was used. I, I We were prepared to talk forever and ever. Well, yeah. Why, why do you think that this issue came to the forefront now when the path to implementation for right to work is so difficult and that bar is so high, yet when you were in the House from 2005 to 2009 when there was a Republican governor and a Republican legislature it was never a major issue of concern for the legislature. Why do you think it's such a big issue now? 
Well, at that time, the governor himself said that he would not support a right-to-work issue, the Republican governor. Matt Blunt, by the way. Yes. And, uh, you know, I'm a Democrat. I've been a Democrat all my life. I'm also a labor person. And as a labor person, labor people know that uh, issues like right-to-work does not have a political party attached to it. People in the legislature, uh, or at least the rank-and-file members, don't think it it does. A lot of the labor union uh, members in St. Charles County are not Democrats. We'd like to think they are, but they're not. You can just look at the numbers out there and who they're electing. Mm. So the folks that on the other side of the aisle that voted to sustain the governor's veto, they were representing the people that put them in office. And just for context, about 20 Republicans voted against. I believe the there veto. was 27. 27, maybe. I'm not sure what the number is. I'll have to look at that after that. But during session, I think there were four Republicans in the Senate who voted against it. Tom Dempsey, Mm -hmm. Paul Wieland, Ryan Sylvie, and Gary Romine. And someone like Paul Wieland said pretty out front during his campaign and afterward that he was not supportive of right to work and that none of his constituents in Jefferson County asked him to to vote for it. Um, I know he was kind of talking about the whole Planned Parenthood issue kind of in the interim, but... Clearly, it's a situation where someone in districts where there's a lot of union representation has to think about that. Well, and they hear from we have done a very good job. Union membership has done a very good job of getting their message out to their elected officials. They I received letters from my district. And this time, I don't know if you remember a few years ago when we had this in the House, we shut down the the computers all shut down because they were flooding everything. I actually do remember that. You remember yeah. that? And it was all it was all form letters. I received over 500 letters this last session on this issue before uh, the veto session. These were handwritten notes. They were from members. They were from members' wives. Uh, they were from their kids. One would say, I'm a college student somewhere. My dad's union wage paid for me to go to college. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't a form letter like we're used to doing. It was a whole different tactic. It was uh, boots on the ground, knocking on the door, grassroots effort. Was there one of those letters uh, that, that stood out to you, the one that you just kind of really, really remember vividly, one of those handwritten The one letters? I just talked about, Yeah, hearing from college students, mm-hmm. because I have always, you know, I went to high school and apprenticeship school with the sa- and worked in the summers with the same group of kids I grew up, you know, grew up with. And we all ended up in the trades. And some of them, they're kids when they were 16, they're driving nice cars. And it was my contention that some of these kids forgot where they came from. They forgot who, how that wage was earned to buy that car or to pay that tuition in school. And the college students stuck out to me because I sent three kids through college on that wage. Mm-hmm. And um, every time they walked out the door, I made sure when they went back up to school that they had a stack of voter registration cards. Because it's very important to me. I don't care who you vote for. I don't care where you vote from. But please do it. It's the only thing you can do for free. And when the college kids get it, that's our that's our future. When those kids understand it and they're ready to move forward and they're not kids, they're young adults and they're they're ready. Uh, You know, when I heard from them, that was the most to me or the senior citizen that says my husband is on all these chemo drugs. That is one worry I don't have because I have a good health insurance plan that's paid for through the bargaining unit.
Let's just refresh, though, for a second and explain to people again why, from the union perspective, right to work would be such a bad thing. Well, you can you can equate it a bunch of different ways, but the three of us are in the room right here, sitting here at the mics, and uh, Jason and I decide we're going to be in the union. You, Tim, decide you're not going to be in the union, but you're going to have the same protections. You're going to have the same contract is Jason and I, and how? And you're not going to pay union dues. It's a free rider system. That, uh, just for our listeners, and I usually have Joe explain this because yeah. I can't really <laughs> explain what right to work is, but basically if you are in a, a job where people have voted to organize, currently if you don't want to be part of a union, you still have to pay dues so they represent you. Right to work would be a situation where if you don't want to be part of a union, you don't have to pay dues anymore. Correct. So – you know, the proponents say it's a way to bring more jobs here. It's an economic development tool. I'm sure you've heard all the proponency of it, and I'm sure you have a, a snappy response to all of well, that. Well, and, and I have heard it, but write down Cattlemen's Association. You cannot sell a piece of beef in this state if you're a cattleman without being a member of the Cattlemen's Association. So how is that different than being a member? That, to me, that's a labor organization. Mm-hmm. You have you don't you can't get anything for free. You have got to pay for the services you receive. And when you reduce those services, it eliminates the ability to uh, negotiate a contract, uh, get health benefits, uh, retirement. Most people are going to 401k programs now for retirement. I have a defined benefit plan. And that is how I run my household on that. I don't have to rely on the ups and downs of the market. Mm-hmm. And those are benefits that are slowly going away. And in right-to-work states, they don't have them. In right-to-work states, women make over $200 less a month than their counterparts in uh, states that have uh, con- you know, union states. Is it because, though, many of those states are in the South and the cost of living is just generally lower than non-right-to-work states, which are typically like New York, California, Illinois, those types of places? No, I don't. I don't think so. If you, I, you know, a lot of them are in the South, but uh, Oklahoma, yeah, they're all south of the line. But I don't think so. I really don't. You, uh, you think it's more because the fact that the unions aren't as strong, they don't negotiate good, better wages than. States well, look at Tennessee. Yeah. How many did the, that car plant over there? Was it a, I don't even know what kind of car plant it was recently. In it the was, last, I don't know, a hovercraft yeah, it doesn't company ma- No, it was, a, it was a foreign car maker. Was it Volkswagen maybe? No, I don't know, but they came. Fiat, yeah, sorry, Fiat. They came this close. They were within I don't know. Um, not many votes of organizing. I passed that plant, on, by the way, on my way to. Florida. Yeah, on okay. my way to vacation this year. And, I, you know, I thought about that because I drove down there by myself. But uh, it just it's amazing to me that African-Americans in this state are more likely to be union workers and they make 13 percent more than their counterparts in other states. That's a, that's a lot of money. Well, well, let's talk about that. I mean, because okay. th- th- this has been a longstanding um, there's a longstanding sentiment among many African-American workers that the unions are not inclusive. How would you respond to that sentiment? Well, first of all, the unions do not do the hiring, Mm -hmm. at least not in our building trades, which I am a member of, Mm -hmm. which when I tell you building trades, pipe fitters, plumbers, carpenters, uh, anybody that would be building a building down here on Grand Avenue. Mm -hmm. We don't hire. Our contractors hire. 
Now, what we provide to our contractors is a product that can go out on the street, put out on the job, somebody that can go right to work tomorrow. We educate them four-year, four- and five-year apprentices. The one I participated in was four years. Some of them are five. Uh, Jeff Abusi, who is the president of the St. Louis Building Trades, has developed a program called BUD, Building Union Diversity. And ironically, BUD rolled out... Uh, like maybe like, a, I don't know, a month after yeah, Ferguson happened? No, it was before. It was before. It was before. It was rolling out then, and then everything happened, and it looked like it was a knee-jerk reaction to that, but it really wasn't. It was already on paper. They were already recruiting, and I think they've graduated three classes. I know several of them have ended up in the Painters District Council. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them have ended up in the Plumber and Pipefitters local. Mm-hmm. Probably some of them ended up in the Carpenters Local. And what the program did was it took men and minority men and women, which, um, you know, is important to remember that there's a segment of I belong to a group of women construction workers. It was hard for them to find work. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're often forgot about it. And they're good workers. They're good at their trade. If you remember when they did the Highway 40 thing, they recruited a lot of uh, women to work on that highway. Mm-hmm. Well, when that was done, it, uh, the contractors laid them off, and that was the end of it. We have got to figure out a way to have our contractors become more inclusive, and I think they're they're working on it. But um, at the end of the day, we also have to remember that these are people who are in business, and I really don't think that they care what you and I look like. They want a product. They want somebody to go out and deliver their product. And they see numbers and they see results. But could the union, I mean, you were talking earlier about the collective power of of the unions in in the state of Missouri. So could that collective power be used to push contractors to be more inclusive when they're looking for who they hire from the union? Well, I think that that happens every day in the St. Louis area. I think that the building trades here is working hard to do that. He's included them in the BUD program. And somebody has to, I think, is collaborative there. Somebody has to pay for this program. You can't just find these people and then send them to the apprenticeship programs. It's still a cost. And many of these contractors, many of the contractors and the apprenticeship programs are joint programs now where the contractors have to agree to this. They have to agree to allow these folks to come into the school. Mm -hmm. They have a say in what happens in the schools. Now, when I started out 35 years ago, they were strictly ran by the locals. There was very little contractor participation, and we funded our, which we still do, we fund our uh, apprenticeship schools through union dues. So for every hour I worked at the time I retired, I think it was three cents of every hour I worked, went into the apprenticeship program to pay for the education of the rank-and-file members coming up behind me. Mm -hmm. That was three years ago. It's probably somewhere south of a dime right now, I'm sure. But Mm -hmm. um, And we were always very proud of that fact that we educated our own and we paid paid for their education. We trained them. Um, They take history lessons, labor history lessons in the school my daughter goes to. And where I went, when I started out in apprenticeship school, it was a room about the size of this and your booth over there. Mm-hmm. And it was in a garage off Page Avenue. Okay. I think yeah. the digs are nicer <laughs> yeah. now. But I think the reason we're, uh, yeah, yeah. They're nicer now because we've invested in 
the metropolitan area and the workforce here. And we've come into this next century with um, ingenuity. But, but well, why do you think, though, I, I just want to ask one more question, though. I mean, why do you think that there is this ling- lingering sentiment that unions are not inclusive when it comes to m- minorities? Because everybody would like to have a union job because of the pay that goes with it. But there's not enough jobs out there anymore. It's a dwindling market. And it's easy to pick on the guy that you can see. Do you understand what I'm saying? You don't see the contractors. You see the guys out there on the job site. You see the guys that are swinging the hammers and bending the iron, the guys that are putting in the HVAC systems. You don't see their bosses. You don't see the guys that are hiring them. You see the men and women on the job site, and they're the easy target. They're the ones, I mean, what we pour, what labor unions pour into this community in the city as far as philanthropy, Wow, I did that. That word is one of the most difficult. Philanthropy. Different- yeah, it's that's almost as hard as minimum. <laughs> I can do minimum Min- real you, well. You, I've done like 40 stories on the minimum wage, and I always have trouble saying minimum, but continue. But nobody talks about that. Nobody sees that. I'm getting ready to, well, to, uh, I believe it's Saturday morning. I'm going to go to the training facility, I think, of the plumbers and pipe fitters and speak before they go out and do heats on. Are you familiar with that program? I am, yeah, yeah. 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 They're doing heats on Saturday. Well, and for the people at large that are listening to this, they're going to go out. They are going to spread out like a giant web across the city and county and start fixing furnaces and making sure that folks' systems are working for the winter months. And they're going to do it all for free. Now, they have partnerships in this now. But when this, these programs started out, we were out there by ourselves. We just did this because it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I think when you're when you're out on Front Street, you're an easy target. Yeah. So, like I said, people don't see the contractors; they see the fact that they see all these men out there on the construction site. And I, I am not saying that it's all good. Thirty-five years I spent in the trades, and I seen some movement in those thirty-five years where I would walk onto a job and I wasn't the only woman. I, you know, now it's getting more common, but I would forever just go in and do my work, want to get in and want to get out because I, there was no, none of my peers were there, none of my counterparts. And I'm not, I was treated quite well. I learned a very good craft, uh, and I was taught by the folks that uh, came before me, but they were all men. Right. There were no other women. Um, and there was more people of color than there was were women. There's uh, not very many women in my trade now, but there's a lot more than when I started. Well, we want to shift gears a little bit because your North St. Louis County-based district includes a very small part of Ferguson and even more of Dalwood, which was a city that was impacted by the Michael Brown shooting unrest. I just want to ask very simply over this last year plus, what were kind of your impressions of what happened in North St. Louis County and in Ferguson and Dalwood and just the national swarm that came over a part of the region that you've lived in all of your life, basically. I have lived out there all my life, and I'm, I'm very proud of the municipalities out there and how they have handled the national news media and not necessarily like their leadership, but the folks that live there. You know, I if I go to the beauty shop to get a haircut, I see a woman from Ferguson all the time. And she's a senior citizen, and she says, I just want these people to go home. I said, who do you want to go home? 
Well, all these reporters, things like, you oh, know, the, the all, national. All, all, not like you guys. Jason. You guys, <laughs> you know, it, it, they don't. She, she said to me one time, I wish somebody would understand that. Um, and this was after the last bit of fire, bit of fire, so the, the big deal. The over grand jury in, decision in yeah, November in of Delaware, last year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, she says, I wish people would understand where we live. She says, what happened last week, it was Monday night, I believe. It was. She yeah. said, uh, that was in Delwood. And she says, and I pray for the mayor of Delwood every day. Mm. And they were doing such great things in Delwood. But to Mayor Jones's credit, he did not miss a beat. He said he was going to take care of his city. He was going to take care of his small businesses. And he just got to work the next day. He was out there the next day doing press conferences saying, look at this. Who's going to come in and help us? And now a lot of the businesses are opening back up. Um, there's one that has moved down the street and, Hulls, you know, further north onto Hall's Ferry. She was up on West Floor. Was that the was that a, like it's, a clothing store? Yes, it yeah. was. Yes, yeah. she just she just opened her new store. Um uh, mm-hmm. But the folks that live out there, they're resilient. Yeah. And they're not going to uh it's a, it, it they're not going to give up their their community, yeah. their sense of community. One of the things I wanted to talk about was that in the run up to the grand jury decision, there were I think a bunch of press conferences from the governor, from the mayor, the then county executive, and they were talking about how they were going to be ready for the decision and how they were going to protect lives and speech. And I believe he Businesses said property. property. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening, as as everybody knows, is when uh, Darren Wilson was not indicted, many businesses were torched, including many in Delwood, even though Delwood had, I think, very little to do what was going on in Ferguson. There was an entire stretch of businesses that were completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people, including us, asked the governor, you know, you gave an implicit promise to these businesses that they were going to be protected. We actually asked him about this in February. If somebody asked him, you know, would you have done anything differently? Here's what he had to say about that. When you have that level of gunfire, when you have that level of, of uh, activity, there is nobody going to run at that. Uh, what you need to do is, is, is make sure that, that the two pillars that we operate under the entire time, speech and safety, are where your focus is. And on speech, I don't think anybody in the world thinks there was a lack of free speech this summer uh, and into the fall in the Show Me State. And as far as safety, the fact that, that no one, no other lives were lost, no one else was shot, and that we were able to make it through in a very difficult situation with that level of discipline, uh, I think is, is important. Okay, I understand what the governor is saying there. I know that nobody wanted a situation where the National Guard was firing at people and potentially killing them. But again, the governor did give this implicit message to Missouri that businesses were going to be protected. Some of the businesses had insurance, but some of them didn't. And the owners put their life savings into them. I'm sure you've heard that yourself. Let's remember, too, this was not the first round. You know, this was not the first time some of these businesses had experienced looting and fires. So how, how far does the insurance go? Probably not very far. Yeah, not very far. Not a second time, not a third time. I sat and watched this from my living room. I was so disturbed because if we're going to be protected, you would think that you would see, uh, you know, the part that really upset me and worried me was I seen uh, the fire protection districts out there, the firefighters. Nobody. Nobody but the firefighters. These guys don't carry guns. They don't wear Kevlar Mm -hmm. vests. 
you know, if you tell somebody you're going to protect your bu- the businesses, wouldn't you think, knowing this was happening, that the, you would have seen a presence? Right. I'm not necessarily saying that people had to stand there or that the National Guard had to stand there with their weapons drawn, but some kind of presence. There wasn't even a presence. Because they were in Clayton. They were yeah, in Clayton. They and were that's in Clayton. my yeah, Let me ask but, you this. I mean, has the governor, he had said that both before the grand jury decision and after the grand jury decision in November of last year, that he was going to, the plan was to position the National Guard around, quote unquote, static locations. Have you received any information from the governor's office about why those businesses were not included on a list of static locations and businesses in Clayton were? No. And I don't, uh, you know, you could define static locations to me all you want, but if it's right there, if it's right there where everything originated, wouldn't those be static locations? Wouldn't those be the businesses that we want to protect? Because what I've seen in Clayton was peaceful protest. You know, we had two different things going here. We had a group of people exercising their right of free speech. Mm-hmm. And then you had a group of people that wanted to burn and pillage businesses in the community. And that's what was going on in my community. That's what was going on in Delwood that night. And I was just astounded. And to see firefighters jumping behind these pumpers fear for their life, and then they leave. It was too little, too late. They were late fearful they, because the National Guard wasn't there to protect no, them. No, and people were shooting at them. I, I, You know, common sense tells you if somebody's shooting at you, you get. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, the, you know, you have to remember, too, Jason, I served almost three months short of 10 years on the Riverview Fire yeah, Protection Board. I do remember that. Board. So I'm seeing guys that when they started out as young firefighters, middle-aged firefighters mm-hmm. now that I know, people that I know, and I, I'm worried for their safety. And th- I kept shouting at the TV, and where where's the protection, Where as everybody else did. I, I'm getting the subtext that you weren't very pleased with how the governor responded to the unrest. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And I don't think anybody was uh, pleased that lives, lived out there. I've lived out there all my life. And you have a reasonable, you know, you should have a reasonable expectation of protection in your community. And that was completely absent. Do you have any sense of whether or not the legislature or anyone else will really be able to get a satisfactory answer from the governor's office? Because there was a committee formed, but I think they only only met like twice or something like that. And I think that they're, I get that when they form committees, especially since it's Republican-led, a lot of them have political overtones. A lot of them are trying to, like, bash the governor. But it seemed like there were some real questions here, and it just didn't seem like it, there was more – there should have been probably more hearings on this. I was I was on that committee. I think we had two or three hearings. Some of it was politically motivated. There was a lot of legitimate questions asked. I mean, we had from one of the municipalities, and I'm not sure which, maybe Calverton Park. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we talk about the – buildings that burnt and the businesses and the lost revenue. Uh, Some of the things we don't talk about was the taxpayer dollars that were extra taxpayer dollars that were spent on overtime Mm -hmm. for police protection, fire protection, money that these municipalities don't have, lack of transportation. You know, we talked about that before when we were talking about uh, folks getting to work. We're talking about folks that rely on buses and, uh, Metrolink and things to get from point A to point B. 
So when you burn everything down, there, there's the people that lived there had nowhere to go. One of the businesses that stayed open on Chambers was Meat Fair, and they managed to make it through there. But if they would have, people were coming into Meat Fair saying, "Oh, thank you for being open," because that was their source. That was where they went to get groceries because they could walk there. Yeah, I know that that's a little in the past, and I think that the big thing that's in the future is the Ferguson mm-hmm. Commission report, which had a lot of policy recommendations. It was kind of drawn up by by Governor Nixon. But you're in the legislature now. You went through a year where they passed a major municipal court bill, but not a whole lot else. It was a group of issues, I think, that you were engaged in, but you probably saw that they didn't get a lot of traction in the legislature. So after the Ferguson Commission report, do you see any change in the mindset of, of your you know, especially Republican colleagues, that there's going to be a focus on some well, of the things there? now that the report is out, I hope I hope we listen to it. I hope we go back in January and listen to it. Um, a lot of the school districts are doing things over there now that they have recommended. You know, when you take a group of your, your uh, segment of your population and say, we are going to give you affordable housing, we need fair housing. Not just affordable housing, because when people say we're going to give you affordable housing and they put you in a four-story block, that's not fair housing. The people that live in my in my community where I live, six three one, I believe it, it, at one point it was six three one three six three seven and three eight had the highest rate of home foreclosures in the state. A lot mm-hmm. of vacant homes. Why couldn't we do something with those homes? And make make them uh, avail somehow figure out a program to make them available to uh, folks that want to raise their kids in a community like that. Because that is a part of the Ferguson Commission, affordable housing. Yeah, yeah. So it's but not- uh, you know we have affordable housing. We need fair housing. Fair housing. There's a there is a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me just ask you this question. I mean, you've been in the legislature since 2002. Do you get the sense that outstate um, legislators, whether they're Republican or Democrat, truly care about these these issues that that were raised in the Ferguson uh, Commission report? I do. I don't think they understand them, and any better than I would understand anything going on in there in a rural community. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had uh, discussion about uh, Coldwater Creek. Mm-hmm at the end during veto session Mm -hmm. and we had discussion about the landfills over in Bridgeton and two very colleagues of mine Republican colleagues from rural areas asked me are these issues true I said well you need one of them's an engineer I said you really need to come in and sit down and look at the science and see what's going on to understand the issue so no I, 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 I think they do uh, they don't understand it, but I don't think that they're going to turn a blind eye to it either. What? So, so well, how does that translate, though? I mean, into into political will to be able to take on some of the things that were listed in the commission report that really can only happen at the state level. Well, I I hope that we start implementing what came out of uh, uh, that report, um, MetroLink expansion. That would be a great place to start. But I, I don't know that people if people have rural, talked about that for a long oh, time. Oh yeah, but if you, a long time if before you can Ferguson. move people from South St. Louis County to North St. Louis County and across uh, the city of St. Louis, 
that's gonna that's half half the battle right there. Right. You know, if people can get to work, they're gonna go to work. Is there a billion dollars in state funds that can pay for well, that? Well, I don't know if you read the paper this morning, but I read the headline, so I don't think so. So the answer is no. It would probably be a federal a lot of federal money, yeah. but I'm sure that there would be an expectation to be local and and in a rare situation maybe state. But and wouldn't it never... be great? I mean, it goes from downtown south. Wouldn't it be great if it went to Florson Valley Community College? I'm sure it would. I I mean, just think of what you know. They've got that training facility over there. Mm-hmm. Where which, which we should say is actually where the Ferguson Commission report was unveiled. Absolutely. Yeah. And they had a lot of their meetings there, too, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, but I know whenever they did a press conference, they did it from there. Yeah. But that would be a great spot for uh, the Metrolink to go to. I had one of the girl, one of my daughters had to take a, a math class one summer in the mm-hmm. interim from school. And for her, her to... Uh, Get to Flarsent Valley from Belfont Neighbors, which was about a mile and a half, two miles, over an hour, mm-hmm. to take public transportation. So and some days she had a car, some days she didn't, some days she rode a but bike. It's, but yeah, it, it's interesting you're bringing these points up because transportation and housing were major aspects of the report. But mm-hmm. I think that the things that got the most attention, including from people like me, are the law enforcement aspects of it, which seem to be pretty controversial in Missouri. It, would it make more sense for legislators to focus on the non-law enforcement piece, or is that going to have to be? I a think critical they all thing? have to go hand in hand, and I think to do the law enforcement piece, you know, I don't understand all the problems that seem to crop up when we talk about body cameras and different aspects. But we need to sit down with that community. Mm-hmm. All when you say that community, do you mean law, law enforcement? enforcement? Okay, absolutely, okay. Sure. and see what the issues are, see mm-hmm. what the problems are, and where they lie. And you know, don't say we have to stop saying we can't do this. We have to start asking how we can do it. Because there've been other there've been other states, including very conservative states like Texas and moderately conservative states like Colorado, which have gotten through the body camera issue by having law enforcement at the table and coming up with. Something that doesn't make everybody happy because you have to have the whole issue of when you release body camera footage, but they got something done. Right. So. Well, and I look at that, that is a a win-win, you know, just looking at it from the surface of somebody that doesn't know all the ins and outs and reasons why you shouldn't do it. I look at it as protection for the law enforcement officer Mm -hmm. as well. I, 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 if I was a law enforcement officer, I'd want one. Yeah. Especially when we don't have the funds to police our streets as we should. We have one police officer in a in a vehicle. Mm-hmm. I, I think that we should have two officers on the street. It's just it's something we need, but it's something we can't afford. What about in terms of uh, officer-involved shootings? Should a special prosecutor be appointed to investigate those incidents? I never supported a special prosecutor. Mm-hmm. If there was legislation there to do that, I would consider it. Mm-hmm. But the prosecutor was elected in the county to do a job. And um, I know that the prosecutor comes from a law enforcement family and that people held that against him. But when you take an oath of office, I, I, would, I know that when I took my oath of office, I left all of the what-ifs behind in every, you know, I am... I have a job. I'm charged with the job. And I would hope that the prosecutor that was elected by the people would see 
his job the same way. But I have more of an open mind to it now than I did a year ago. Because I think that, you know, one of the, the person you're referencing is Bob McCullough, the St. Louis County prosecutor. And he was on our show a couple months ago. I was very much opposed to this idea. He, he brought up, I think, some logistical problems with it. Like, first of all, he mentioned what happens if he's elected attorney general or somebody who's very, quote unquote, pro-police is elected attorney general. Well, then the whole issue of removing bias kind of gets washed out. There's also the, 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 the issues of if there's a shooting in like a very rural area and the attorney general can't get there quickly enough, because if you make this statewide, for example, there could be logistical problems like having someone investigate things like that. This would probably have to be sorted out in details. Well, it would, would have to be sorted out. And I have always, you know, I don't like picking a spot like St. Louis County and saying, we're going to do it here, but we're not going to do it in Kansas City or we're not going to do it in Mocaine, Missouri. You can't do it in Kansas City because Kansas City is represented by the attorney general, the police department, because it's state control. Yeah, that's true. So they wouldn't be a part of this. And that would be a major problem there. But we could probably discuss these issues all day. I do want to touch on one more topic, though, um, before we sign off. I've mentioned on Twitter, and I didn't mean this to mention disparately, that you are you are the only member of the legislature who's currently there who voted against putting an amendment banning gay marriage on the ballot in 2004. To put this in context, it passed by an overwhelming margin. Every Republican voted for it, I think, except for one voted present. And there were many prominent Democrats, including State Treasurer Clint Zweifel, former State Senator Paul Lavota, even then- Senate Minority Leader Ken Jacob, who is not known as a you know screaming conservative, right. who voted to put that on the ballot. Yet you were one of the people who voted against it. Obviously, gay marriage is the law of the land. Do you feel some vindication that you were right on that issue? Well, at that time, to me, it was a, a non-issue. I thought we were getting involved in people's inside their homes and in their bedroom. It's not our business. And... Um, as I told you before, I raised three kids. Well, you know, and none of my children are gay, but if they're still my children, if one of the girls came home and said, this is my partner for life, I'd say, great. They're, you know, I, I don't just quit loving my child. Somebody, nobody wakes up and chooses their lifestyle. I did not wake up and decide one day I'm going to be a blue-collar worker and this is how I'm going to live my life. This I really believe that you're born into things and this, this is where I'm at. I No, there's no vindication. I just thought it was a waste, a huge waste of time then, mm-hmm. and it's a huge waste of time now. Mm-hmm. I think what's going on in Kentucky is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, why do we need to beat up on people? Yeah. And we, that's all, all we're doing. But we had talked about this before we started rolling um, in, in the show, that you had wrestled with that vote a little bit. I did. I wrestled yeah. with it because when you're making a vote like that, you're thinking about your district because you're mm-hmm. there to represent um, the constituents that sent you. But at the end of the day, you know, a lot of times people say, well, what party are you from? And I'm a Democrat, but I say I'm of the party of common sense. You know, and a lot of times you just have to let common sense be your guide and do the right thing. Because some of these issues are are very, you can just overthink them. You can think about Mm -hmm. what they're going to do to your next election Mm -hmm. cycle. And then other times you just have to get in there and do what 
your heart and your mind is telling you the right thing to do. Why do you think, though, that some of your prominent Democratic colleagues either didn't oppose that amendment or didn't oppose gay marriage until very recently? Even someone like Claire McCaskill, although she opposed that amendment, I have to mention that there, didn't come out in favor of gay marriage, I think, until 2012, 2013. Same with the governor. Is it just it was just difficult politically for people to to say, you know, it's okay for gays and lesbians to be married at that point in time? Well, I think it I think that the, Missouri is conservative. And I think that plays a lot into it. And as I said before, people worry about the next election cycle. And I think a lot of folks truly wrestle with these issues and they're not sure. You know, I I can't explain their votes mm-hmm. and I can't defend or not defend them. I can only defend my own record. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you just have to do the right thing. So the only, And yeah, what sorry. I you know, what I think is the right thing may not be what uh, one of my colleagues in the Missouri House might think is the right thing. And it was obvious because I was on the losing side of that vote that day. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm proud of that vote. And I thank you for reminding me about it every time the issue comes well, up. And... <laughs> I'm, I'm always there on Twitter to make you feel better. My thank last you. question for you, though, I think the one lingering thing from a policy standpoint is bringing uh, the LGBT community into the human rights statute, which yeah. is called MONA. Um, that was something that actually came kind of close to passing a couple of years ago. It passed the Senate, which was kind of surprising. It, and just I don't think it got any momentum the last couple of years. See any momentum for that next year? I somebody carried it last year, and I don't. Maybe Joe Kep, Senator Kevney. It was Kevney, I think Stephen Weber as well. Yeah. And Weber, I would hope so. Yeah. It's the right thing to do. I mean, why? I, I, as I said before, I don't understand why these are difficult issues. They're common sense issues. Everybody deserves protection. Everybody deserves to. Uh, feel uh, like they feel protected in their home, you know, not think about it. Do you, I don't know where you live, but do you go home and do you worry about when you get out of your car, getting from point A to point B? Um, Tim and I kind of live very close to yeah. each other in southwest St. Louis City, and I don't think that's a huge concern, but no. it's in uh-uh. the back of my mind. You but know? there's places like that in our in our metropolitan area, lots of them. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the places I shop. I, I, I'm very aware of my surroundings. One of my daughters still lives at home, and I tell her, you know, pay attention to where you're at. Why shouldn't everybody have the same protections yeah. at work? You know, you should never lose your job over your lifestyle. That's nobody's business. But today it still happens every day in the city. Every I, day. You, you know, I, I, I've got one last question as well. and I, I No, you don't. Yes, you I should, do. I swear. You both keep saying they're one last question. Well, we're <laughs> sneaky, we're, we're sneaky we're, reporters. We're, we're, we just, we're, we, we'll take as much as we can we, get. We apologize. <laughs> I hear Not CNN really. knocking. They're going <laughs> to yeah, steal yeah. you from our... Uh, Oh, come on. Yeah. Don't <laughs> compare us good, to CNN. These are good digs. Like, what yeah, are you talking they about? Are good digs. No, I, good I, digs. All I listen got to windows. is public radio. No offense hey. to people who work at CNN, but continue. Well, I'm going to make a hard transition from kind of something, you know, some lightheartedness to something serious. You know, I have to ask, too, you know, as a woman who's been in Jefferson City for more than a decade now, a lot of questions have been raised about how women are treated uh, in the state's capital. From your perspective, 
what needs to happen to make sure that Jefferson City is more inclusive and that women, whether it's an intern or a state representative or a state senator, feel comfortable working in Jefferson City and fairly treated? I think people need to act like adults. You know, we start talking about, I about died when I read, somebody said maybe we need a dress code. Are you kidding me? So once again, we're going to blame the victims for somebody else's bad behavior? That was crazy. That is, you know, act like an adult. You're elected. You're not, um, you're not any more important than the person that sent you up there. So you're sent up there to do a job. And so the way I run my office is that um, my whole constituency is sitting in there every day watching what I'm doing because it's not our offices. That's the one thing we forget when we go up there. Those aren't our offices. My office is the office of the 13th district. And I made a statement when this all happened that I wouldn't want one of my daughters up in Jeff City interning at the time. And it's all, every time something like that happens, we still fall back to 30 years ago where we blame the victim. So we have to stop victim bashing for one thing. And we have to step up to the plate and act like adults. These are common sense things. My office has strict rules for interns. My interns do not have time. And they do not go out with me at night, but they do not have time to go to events in Jeff City because they're working on constituent issues and they're there to learn. And that's how every office should be. And I will tell you that most of them are. And it's like anything else. When there's bad apples in the bunch, that's that's what sells newspapers and that's what you see, as you should. I'm not saying that you shouldn't. Tim, because you know, <laughs> I think I, gave, I think I gave you a look when when you when you brought that up. <laughs> right, right, right. We don't but, sell newspapers. We don't sell here. newspapers, we but, sell, but, sell, but the know, sentiment, you, you, the yes, sentiment. You get yeah. the sentiment, and these things are newsworthy as they should be. Whenever any wrong is done to anybody in our society, and for these young women not to come up there to their capital with the same expectation as their male counter, counterpart is nuts. Well, I, I mean, I get what you're saying as far as that. You know, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong here. I don't think we need any new rules. Yeah, I mean, you're you're talking about... I don't think we need any dress codes. I think people need to act like adults. But you're talking about changing the culture in a place that's been a certain way for a very long time. How do you begin to kickstart that process? Well, we're going to try because both chambers have already started implementing rules for next session. And I, I hope that when they're finished with They have committees that are working on this. When the committees are finished with their work, that there are rules that address uh, behavior of the members, not the interns. You have to understand that when uh, these are still college students, these are still young people coming up someplace that they've never been before, and it's like Christmas, but you still need rules. You still need to adhere to the rules, but we need rules. The elected officials need rules to follow and guidelines to supervise these folks because somebody's sending their kid to us Mm -hmm. to help educate them. Do the universities have more responsibility in in that as well? I mean, to make sure that whenever they're... I think it's a partnership. Mm -hmm. I think it's a partnership because most of my interns have come... Well, I think all of my interns have come from either Westminster or Truman. Mm -hmm. And both of those programs are very well monitored. I, um, 
I can't speak to the other universities and how they do it because I believe every program is different yeah. in how they supervise it. Excuse me. But uh, I, I really think that we need to have a stronger partnership with the universities. We'll have to end it there. Yeah. Thank, thank we, you. we did have more than one more question. Apparently. We, <laughs> very astute, we're, we're very, very savvy people. <laughs> thank you again for joining us. We'll have to have you on a third time so you can join the very exclusive three-time politically oh, yeah. speaking is, club. Is anyone? Oh, yeah. yeah. Scott Sifton, Joe Kevney, John Deal has been on four times. Nobody wants to be part of that club. We digress. Thank you for doing this. Uh, for all of our stories, <laughs> stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter, Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Tim uh, uh, on Twitter. Yeah, I'm on Twitter, too. Uh, Tim S. Lloyd. And you're on Twitter as well? At Walsh Gina. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long. Take the money.